the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. You know, Thanksgiving season is once again upon us as we think of family and friends, meals and menus, and gathering together to certainly celebrate the great abundance and richness that we as Americans enjoy. Even in spite of the current economic downturn, America is still the most blessed nation on planet Earth. Now, there are plenty of books on the topic of cooking and feasting. There are certainly books on fasting and dieting. If after Thanksgiving you are inclined to lose a few pounds. Uh, But how about one on feasting? and fasting from a uniquely biblical perspective. I think they've kindly come up with a book that's never been written before. And joining me right now is the editor of this wonderful book, assembled by 34 independent writers looking at feasting and fasting toward God. The book is called The Spirit of Food. And Leslie Leland Fields, great to have you on the show with us today. Well, thanks for for having me. I'm I'm happy to be with you. You know, we talk about Thanksgiving and certainly our our thoughts turn toward the Thanksgiving menu and getting family together and celebrating. Celebrating this uniquely American holiday, um, where did the concept come of sitting down and gathering the caliber of authors that you have here to talk about spiritual perspectives, I guess we'll call it, on food? Well, you know, I've been watching um, the whole sort of food movement, you know, what's been going on in the last 10 years in American culture over food, and um, it's, been, it's been really interesting. I think that we have become as a culture, more and more interested in food, and, and we know that because there's the Food Network, and there there are all these shows that are about, um, you know, cooking food, eating food. Isn't there one called Bizarre Foods or something? Oh, yes, yes, uh-huh. Yeah, I haven't mm-hmm. seen it, but... Um, so there's a, there's clearly just a huge fascination, a growing fascination with, with foods. But there's also a parallel um, thing going on, and that is, and, and of course they're very closely connected, and that is the whole obesity issue. So we've we've got a real fascination with food. But I I was so, you know, as I've watched this this going on, I've thought, you know, where. Where is the spiritual aspect of, of food? That 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 element, that huge element, um, is missing, and and I, I think that the time is 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 ripe. I, I hope I don't fall into food metaphors through this whole <laughs> interview, but the time is ripe to start to to bring back together the spiritual part of food and the physical part of food, and to marry them back together, which is how God created food in the first place to feed us, to feed not just our bodies, but to feed our spirits and our as well. And, you know, it's an interesting fascination because I think for a good part of American history, uh, food was one of our great pastimes. Things uniquely American, uh, you know, your hamburgers, your hot dogs, uh, things of this sort. And in recent years, you're right, the last decade or so, it seems as if the focus on food for more of a, a gourmet aspect of it has come into center stage uh, on the American plate and palate. And I think that's a good thing. It's interesting because other cultures certainly celebrate, they, they revel in food. I think of French cooking, Italian cooking, yeah. which is my background. Yeah. Now to see sort of that that focus on higher caliber, a higher quality of food, and all that goes with it, which is interesting because
because you know it's one thing to slap a hamburger on the the, yeah. the, the, the grill and in 20 minutes you're eating um, more we're seeing interest in in complicated recipes recipes they take time recipes that take a lot of love and so we're yeah. finding I think here in this new book that you've edited the spirit of food a combination of those things coming together and, and I think it's also interesting because we see so many images of food used throughout the scripture even, even as we talk about the body of Christ coming together at the Supper of the Lamb, that great banquet table in heaven. Strong images are used there that, unfortunately, I think uh, Americans have not quite uh, come to that realization of. No. I, you know, Craig, that is so true. We really have not paid attention, I don't think, to um, to, to the food and the scriptures and to, and to all that it represents. And it is so fascinating to, to start to follow that, even if you simply follow the word bread from the beginning of the scriptures through to the end. Um, and you know, when the, when the scriptures open, we open in a garden, and some of the first words that God says to Adam and Eve are about food. You know, here, I've given you all of this, you know, to eat. Here's what you may eat. Here's what you may not eat. And and the fall of man happens over, over food, you know. And, and really what's going on is that Adam and Eve are saying, you know, we don't want to be dependent on you to feed us. We want to, we want to feed ourselves. And that's why I think all of us have a choice um, as believers. You know, are we going to are we going to are we going to eat like Adam and Eve, who who um, stepped back from their dependence on God, their Father, to feed them, and said, "No, we're going to feed ourselves. We're going to eat what we want to eat." Are we going to eat like Christ, who remained completely dependent on God for for everything that he ate, and even you know when you think about his um, out in the out in the wilderness when he was out for forty days and he didn't eat and. And Jesus was just out there. He was, you know, he was starving, but he would not eat. And that was the first temptation that Satan brought to him. You know, hey, you're hungry. God, your father is not feeding you. Feed yourself. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus would not do it. He would not do it. He remained dependent on his father to feed him. So I think that it's very important that we sort of make this this choice and have this realization that every food that comes into our hands and that we that we're able to eat as a gift from God is you know that God is feeding us and that we bring that gratitude and that recognition to it you know, it, it strikes me, too, that as we've seen America become less spiritual, church attendance down, uh, drifting away from some of our Judeo-Christian moorings that we've enjoyed in this nation historically, uh, we've become less spiritual and yet more of a gluttonous nation. Uh, oh. Obesity is significantly on the rise, and it almost makes you wonder, as we draw the strong parallels that we see between spirituality and food from Scripture, this idea that we're eating more in an attempt, and a, a false one at that, to try and somehow satisfy... Yeah. ourselves to, to satisfy a hunger, yeah. a hunger that in reality is only met from spiritual renewal. Uh, you know, and, and I think of the images as you were talking, uh, Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life, yeah. uh, living water will I give to you to drink that you yeah. will thirst no more. Uh, isn't it curious that it is, they, they joke oftentimes about, well, if you get sent to jail, they'll give you a basic meal of bread and water, thinking that as the, the fundamental necessities of life and that imagery that Christ paints of the connection between the two, I think is something that, that ought to cause us to pause and ponder. Oh, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, Craig, that I think the reason we're seeing this, the um, just the continued rise of obesity, and it's so interesting that, you know, everyone in the country knows it's a problem, and yet we keep on getting fatter. And uh, we are trying to feed all of these other hungers, our spiritual hungers, our hunger for belonging, our hunger for community. 
we're trying to fill those hungers with food. And, um, and, and, and it's true that God intends food to feed us in these other ways, but you can't do it without the Lord. You can't do it without the living bread and without the living water. And perhaps, too, do you think, Leslie, that God wants us to see the two connected so that when we sit down, much as a lot of Europeans do, that a meal becomes something huge in and of itself. Uh, go to the home of an Italian family. Yeah. And dinner is not just something, you know, tossed in front of you, which is wolfed down in 20 minutes and then back yeah. to the TV set. This is a three, four, sometimes five hour experience. Meals brought out, the meal brought out course by course. You linger over this and you 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 relish in the smells and the flavors and the textures and, and you spend time talking and dialoguing with friends yeah. and family around the table. Yeah. It takes on an entirely different feel and a very spiritual one, I think. It really does. And the table, if you follow the word table through the scriptures, that's another fun word to follow, you'll see that table is always the symbol, both sort of the symbol and, and the reality of it's, it is about communion and about relationship. And Jesus talks about talks about heaven when he when um, when when he's at the Last Supper and he's breaking the bread and he's saying this is my body broken for you and we always concentrate on those verses but then a few verses down he says I'm, I confer on you a kingdom that my father has conferred on me and you will come and sit at my table and eat with me and this is the image of heaven of all of us that this is the ultimate belonging and the ultimate fulfillment of relationship and um, and we can do we can begin to do that now just as you're saying the Europeans are so good at doing this and, and we have we have to slow down as Americans and um, and enjoy the time around the table as uh, a time of connecting deeply with one another and sitting there in in, in uh, communion with one another and communion with God out of gratitude for the gifts of family and friends and the gifts of the amazing food that he brings to our table. Our time today around the table visiting with Leslie Leland Fields, editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Riders on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. The new book, by the way, published by Cascade and available at Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, allow you to sort of uh, clear the palate. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Leslie Leland Fields as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest today. She is Leslie Leland Fields. She is the editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Riders on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. We thought it would be appropriate to spend some time talking about this topic as it relates to the celebration that we have on Thanksgiving, family and friends gathered around that feast table um, in, in a sense of celebration and appreciation for the bounty and goodness that the Lord has shown toward us in the last year. And at the same token, looking at this unique and Connection that we see throughout Scripture between Christ, our relationship with the Lord, and food. Speaking earlier about that great banquet table that we'll enjoy um, when that last trumpet sounds, um, Jesus himself referring to himself as the bread of life, giving us living water. I'm reminded, too, Leslie, at Thanksgiving time, when my grandmother was still alive, um, and I've tried to continue the tradition um, as I've taken over hosting the, the annual family Thanksgiving gathering, 
to bring foods to the table that were representative of, of a number of, of sources. There, there was always bread as a gift from Earth, uh, fish as a gift to us from the sea, uh, the turkey, of course, things of that sort. Uh, in an Italian household, you might uh, serve wine with the meal, uh, celebrating the, the, the fruit of the vine. Mm-hmm. Always that sense of trying to connect the big picture. Right. Is that a big part of what your writers do in this new book in terms of connecting the big picture between gathering together for a meal and the way that a meal is celebrated in light of our relationship with the Lord? Oh, absolutely. And they come at it from all different perspectives, which is really fun because some of the writers are... um Farmers. There's a woman who's a wheat and pig farmer in Canada and who's, who's talking about it from the perspective of a farmer. Other people are professional chefs. Others are just um, um, someone who grows tomatoes in a Cincinnati backyard, um, his suburban backyard. And so people are coming from lots of different perspectives and showing us lots of different ways to reconnect um, our food and our faith. And But all of them, what we're trying to do is is to return to God's intention for for meals and for feasting, which really was about commemoration, and, and that's what you're talking about. You said you would have, you know, a fish, something from the sea, and something from the vine, and and the Old Testament, you know, God instituted um, all of these feasts. I believe there are seven feasts that that God um, instituted, and every one of them is intended to commemorate something, you know, that God has done, whether it's the Harvest Festival or whether it's the Passover commemorating the, the um, you know, the Angel of Death passing over um, the Israelites. But there's always this connection between um, real events and God's provision and the food on the table. And I think as Americans, I think we have, we're just, I, I think we've forgotten, forgotten that connection and made it so much about the food. So I'm hoping that with this book, that we can begin to, to reconnect food and gratitude. The book is a fun one because you have each of the authors share some perspective, some tell some stories, then they eventually lead into to recipes. So it's, it's wonderful the way you, you've combined all of this. And, and interesting, I'm, I'm curious about where you gathered, how you selected these authors. Uh, we have stories in there and recipes, for example, from a relief worker's mobile kitchen that responded to uh, the hurricane down in, in uh, Louisiana, the uh, Katrina. Uh, I, I was struck to one of the writers, the goddaughter of a woman who once, in, in running her her, her little restaurant who once cooked for John Dillinger. How fascinating. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's just so many fun stories of how this all came about. But <clears throat> some of the people... Um, a few people I knew already, some of the people I knew already, and I and I knew that they had really interesting, fascinating thoughts and, and about food and, and interesting food practices. And so I would ask them, uh, like Lucy Shaw, some people she's quite well known. I said, Lucy, would you write an essay on something about the connection between food and, and spirit in your life? And so I asked um, a number of uh, of people to, to write something for me, and then I found other essays um, in, in books. There are some real classic. Um, essays in there, one from Wendell Berry, another from Robert Farrar Capon. So just some, and Andre Debut, some really well-known people who've written beautiful pieces about food. And then they were friends of friends, you know, someone said, well, I know this woman who used to be a baker in Manhattan, and she just up and packed everything up and moved to an organic goat farm in Maine. <laughs> and she's a writer. So it just was incredible how this network just spread out, and, and I got all these amazing people to, to write for the book. Uh, there are recipes of a kosher nature here that, that take us back to the uh, the Talmud and uh, the way a, tr- a typical Jewish family would, would prepare a meal, which I found interesting, even vegetarian recipes. 
Yeah, yeah, there are a few people in the in the book who are vegetarian and who feel very much convicted by God at this point in their lives that that's you know that's how. Um, they should eat, but you know the neat thing is there's when we start talking about food and then you start talking about um what we eat as a Christian, sometimes people can get really legalistic about it and start making rules and laws. And, and there, there's none of that in here. You know, these are people writing beautifully from within their own food lives and giving us a picture, really kind of illuminating some of the possibilities for, for, um, for eating, you know, in, in a more faithful way. Now, you are based out of our, our 50th state. You're way up in Alaska. We were the 49th. 49th. I'm sorry. I, I, I moved you down a notch. Yeah, Hawaii, <laughs> That's right. Hawaii is 50. Hawaii did come in afterwards. You're yeah. absolutely right. After, after World War II. I have to keep my, uh, my, my numbers straight here in my head. So you're from our 49th state. Um, any, any contributions in here from you? Yes. Um, I mean, I have an essay in here um, called Making a Perfect Loaf of Bread. And um, I, bread is a very, goes very deep um, in, into my life and my life story. I grew up um, very, very poor um, with a, a father who didn't work and a mother who with, with six children. So she wasn't really able to work. And bread was kind of what we lived on. We made our own bread. And um this is back in the 60s. Okay, so I'm going to reveal my age here. But um, so we made 21 loaves of bread a week, and that was our that was our main source of food. We didn't have a lot of food, but we did have this bread. And so I grew up making bread, 21 loaves a week, and then and, and I've made all my own bread out at our fish camp. We um, live on an island off Kodiak Island in the summer, where we commercial fish for salmon, and it's very remote and. I make all of our own bread out there. So I'm really looking and weaving together my own life story with bread, together with um, all the biblical imagery of bread and the significance of bread. And I'm also asking the question about perfection. What is perfection and what is the value of our human making? Because there's a recipe out there now online. I'm sure all the bread makers out there know about it. It's called um, no-knead bread. You can make this wonderful bread without kneading it. I mean, it basically makes itself, you know, just by sitting overnight. And um, to me, it, it is a wonderful bread, but it's sort of tragic to think that you don't have to put your hands in the dough. You know, you don't get to lean your body into it. The, the bread is just not nearly as, as alive and as much of a creation from your own your own hands and your own body. Um, yeah. So I'm doing a lot of reflection about that. You know, and it's interesting. I, I think back again to my grandmother and the homemade bread and the smells that would come from the kitchen. Uh, and how marvelous those experiences were. Uh, again, this sense of, of celebration all the time. Even in Italian tradition, if someone purchases a new home, as you go for the housewarming, you bring a loaf of bread, yeah. a large stick of salami, and a bottle of wine for celebration, and that mm-hmm. the, the home would always have uh, sustenance, there would, there would always be a food and joy in that home. Uh, lots of just strong images that I think as we sit down and enjoy our meal on Thanksgiving, or even as folks go to prepare it, that this should be less so about the time it takes. And sometimes we get caught up in all the details mm-hmm. and, and don't really enjoy even the celebration that can be a part of the, the celebration that happens once you break the bread, once you sit down to feast. And that is just the process of the food preparation itself. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I, yes, that's what I want to say, too, is that we, we are so speed-focused and convenience and efficiency-focused, and I'm just as bad as everyone else on this. But it's a great time, especially for these special feasts, to just 
slow down and and enjoy the food that, that those yams that you are peeling or cutting up. Smell them, feel them, enjoy their incredible color, and um, just uh, just marvel at, at at onions and garlic and all of these things that are God's idea, God's creation, and clearly God is a God of beauty and God is a God with really excellent taste buds because <laughs> he he clearly values. Um, beauty and taste and just just the sensuality of all these foods so hopefully we've given you some uh, some more uh, forgive the pun food for thought as we head into thanksgiving and a delightful book that uh, while certainly timely for this season is a perennial that you'll enjoy throughout the year it's called the spirit of food 34 writers on feasting and fasting toward god replete with all kinds of really delicious recipes and the kind of spiritual perspective in here that i think uh, gets you refocused on the important things and all of the the parallels that we see drawn in scripture between uh, the sustenance we enjoy uh, the food that is on our table and our relationship with the lord the book published by cascade books available through amazon.com you can also get more information at leslie's website it's simply leslie-leland-fields.com so just put a hyphen in there between leslie-leland-fields.com and that'll take you right to her website the Spirit of Food. Leslie Leland Fields, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a lot of fun to talk about this subject. Thank you. And uh, might I say bon appetit. Oh, and, and, and the same to all your listeners. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. <clears throat> it was a number of years ago I had the opportunity to sit down with my dad and have kind of one of those adult-to-adult, father-to-son, heart-to-heart talks. And I I had to admit to him, albeit perhaps a bit begrudgingly, that I was amazed at how how smart he had become down through the years. It seems like when we're teenagers, our parents just don't know a thing, and we have all the answers. Then as we grow up and begin to get into this world of life and have our own experiences and eventually go on to raise our own families, we come to find out that Dad, in fact, wasn't all that dumb after all. In fact, he was a pretty smart guy. We set that as kind of the tone for the beginning of our conversation today with a voice that's certainly familiar to KFAX listeners. Um, in addition to his responsibilities as the co-host of the uh, Daily Focus on the Family broadcast uh, heard here on KFAX, uh, he's also got a, a budding writing career going on, and uh, one of his latest books is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, and uh, Great Advice Just in Time for Father's Day. Pleased to have join us on the program this afternoon, the co-host of Focus on the Family's Daily broadcast and uh, author, and perhaps most importantly, father and husband, John Fuller. John, great to have you with us. Craig, thank you for uh, inviting me. And you're right. Uh, of all the titles I've had throughout the years, Daddy is the best one. And isn't that amazing, you know, because often we guys identify ourselves certainly as husbands and as fathers, but then, of course, we have to get the career in there. And, and, and so much of our workday, of course, uh, 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes, uh, is wrapped up in our identity that oftentimes we fail to recognize that perhaps one of the most important roles we have, certainly when it comes to the job that God has given us, is that of father. It is, and it's an irreplaceable job. I mean, the, the guys don't want to admit this, but we're pretty much replaceable at work. I mean, there aren't many of us who are indispensable and irreplaceable. But at home, uh, my kids have one dad, and that's it. And um, and if I don't show up for that job, if I don't throw myself into that one with as much energy and enthusiasm as I do uh, my real day job, if you will, or uh, my golf game, or whatever the side hobby is, 
um, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss out on a great deal of of the richness of the journey of parenting, and my kids are gonna be shorted too, and they're not gonna get the kinds of things that I can give them anywhere else. Now you speak to this with some degree of authority as a father of six. Um, when you first got into this, um, when uh, you and, and your wife, Dina, were about to have the first child, after a, a great deal of effort, we might add, uh, I'm sure, John, there must have been a sense of fear and, and, and amazement and, and a little bit of trepidation at all of us. But then, too, was there a little bit of an idea that, you know, this can't be all that difficult? I mean, after all, you know, my dad raised me, and I didn't turn out all that bad. <laughs> How did you know? Yeah, and, and let me say that if I have any expertise, it's not because I've written a book. It's because for 20 years I've been running into brick walls and stubbing my toe and making mistakes left and right as a father. So uh, my expertise is probably probably born more out of failure than anything else. Um, no, I think I think I was guilty of that, uh, to answer the question directly. I, I thought um, kind of naively that, yeah, this is one more thing that we do. We become dads. And that you can just kind of check that off the list or move on, and that's not really the case. Uh, it was a lot of change. It was like a Scud missile coming out and just blowing up my world. Uh, all of my expectations about how the relationship with my wife was going to continue on, um, my expectations about my job performance, my expectations about hobbies, all of that was out the window when Dakota was born uh, almost 24 years ago now. It was... It was it was a change, and it was a hard change, but it was a good change as I learned to navigate it and deal with it. And I guess navigation, I'm glad you choose that word, John, because some, so often I think some guys think that, well, I'll just go out and take a couple of parenting classes or read a book or think what my dad would have done and either copy it or in some cases think of that, what dad would have done and do the opposite. You know, But a lot of this is really navigation, isn't it? I mean, there, it, it, the baby didn't show up. I mean, the hospital bill came along with it, but there was no manual, was there? Yeah, they, the kids don't read those books anyway, and so it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it, it, the, first cha- the first chapter of my book is called Great Expectations, because I think that really does, that's where we have to start. As a new dad, we have to get our expectations in order and just ask ourselves, as I go into this, what, what exactly am I forgetting? And, and what are some of my hang-ups about this? I mean, most guys don't want to fail, and most of us, I think, feel uh, uh, that failure is imminent as a new dad, because... Uh, the, the, the baby doesn't react like I thought babies reacted, and this is a lot harder than I thought. And I'm now sleep-deprived, and my wife is sleep-deprived, and she's got hormonal changes coming off of the pregnancy if she gave birth. Um, there are all sorts of communication issues. Um, man, I, this thing just has loser written all over it, so I don't run toward it. I run away from it. Well, if you expect it's going to be hard, if you expect it's going to be a, a great lifelong journey to be a dad, but that it's a wonderfully rich experience, and it's, uh, it's a great gift from God to entrust a child into your care, and that this little kid's going to be used by God to chisel all the rough edges off of me and make me more like Jesus, then it's, it's a whole different ballgame then. Now, your book, John, uh, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, really uh, culminates in your years of experience being the father of six uh, and being able to kind of help first-time dads in particular uh, get the priorities straight and maybe learn them a thing or two, as my my grandmother used to say. One of the points that you mentioned very early on is uh, babies are easy. I mean, sometimes, you know, outside of the 3 o'clock feedings and the interrupted sleep and the the major change in lifestyle that suddenly happens, uh, we get used to it early on and then begin to think, oh, well, it can only get easier. It can't get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, it sounds like a voice of experience right there. 
Um, yeah, I, I think every season has been good. My, my two oldest are adults. They're out of the house. And uh, my third child that just turned 18, we still have 16, 13, and 8-year-old in the house. So I'm still living with a lot of younger and, and teenage uh, things. I've got to say that, that yeah, babies are probably one of the easier stages. Um, I hate telling a new dad that because at times it feels like this is so hard. Um, but the rewards increase as the difficulty increases. And uh, sometimes I'll tell someone, I have three teenage daughters in my home. Pray for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I also follow that up real quickly with, a, you know, I love those girls so much. And I'm not sure there's anything better than when they say goodnight, they come up and they want their hug and their little kiss on the forehead. That to me is, uh, that's, that's priceless right there. I can't buy that kind of affection and love from a child. And, and those teen years are precious when the girls still come my way and, and look for my advice and seek out their daddy. So every season is great. Babying is hard, because you're, especially if you're first-time dad, if you're a first-time dad, because you don't know what to expect and how to, how to deal with all the, the issues that newborns have. But once you get the hang of it, it's pretty easy. But it does become, as we move along, there are certain complexities that are inherent to all of this, aren't there? I mean, number one, obviously, for growing families, you're adding not just child number one, who now has grown and gone through the baby years and maybe is either a toddler or a little bit further along. Now along comes child number two. Now there's a balancing act between the two. And so as there is the the exponential growth of the family and the responsibilities, one of the other things, too, that I think oftentimes, John, becomes a major hang-up for, for younger dads that are kind of still figuring all of this out is we see that to an exponential growth in a lot of the demands outside of the house, meaning that we're beginning to hit the pace in the career and the job, and maybe we're moving from you know entry-level positions to middle and upper management, more responsibility. Then, too, we're thinking, well, gee, the family's getting bigger. There are more demands on my time, more people that are counting upon me. I've got to bring the bread in because, you know, this is not just child-rearing expenses. Someday there's going to be education costs and weddings and all of these things. And so suddenly, in addition to a bigger demand for our time in the house as husband and father, there are oftentimes, too, John, lots of demands for our time and attention outside of the house. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Craig, because um, I've observed the very same thing, and it's a concern to me, and I, well, I've experienced the very same thing. Um, you know, we had one and then two and then three children, and uh, the responsibilities at work were great. Uh, I mean, there's, there, I'm working at a ministry. I know that, that, uh, that it's, it's valuable for me to pour into kingdom work, and yet I feel the tug at home, and, and at the same time, uh, I've got single friends uh, who are in their 20s and 30s, and they're doing things like running marathons, and I want to do that. And There is a jumble of stuff going on there. And uh, if I can share just personally, I, I came face-to-face with priorities and with the challenges of work and career. And uh, when my oldest was about eight, he, uh, he was really uh, acting up, and we were having a hard time with some of his, some of his behaviors. And uh, so much so that we sought out a counselor here at Focus on the Family. We talked to one of the Focus counselors for about an hour. And uh, she she listened to us and asked some questions. And then she turned to me and she just said, John, I think your son is acting up because he wants more of you. Mm. You're not home very much. You're working on your master's degree. And that's on top of a pretty intense full-time job working on the radio programming at Focus on the Family. So, um, you know, you just need to throttle back. And I, I, I was nailed. <laughs> I mean, come on, I work in a family ministry, I know family stuff, but I was guilty of doing too much outside the home, and, and some of that was a search for significance, if I can be honest with you. 
some of that was a need to kind of, you know, hold my, pull my weight and hold my own against peers who were doing some things. But some of it was, uh, I think, a right passion to, to get equipped to do the next things that I thought God had for us as a family in the kingdom. Uh, still, I had to just reset and say, wait a minute, what's really important here? And I had to kind of push back on some things so that I could spend more time with my son because he needed me, and he was only eight once. Uh, if I missed that window, he was on to nine and then ten. It, uh, I would have missed him altogether if I wasn't careful. And that's such a critical point, and I want to pause right here because th- this is a point that needs to be really underscored. Because as John Fuller points out, it is easy to kind of get caught up in not only the striving for significance, but you feel like you're doing things that are of critical importance for the family, bringing home the bacon, all of that. And yet this time only comes once, and it comes so rapidly. And for a lot of guys that might say, well, gee, but what about some time for me? I mean, there's these hobbies that I'm involved with, and I'm trying to work on the golf game, and I've got demands on me, not only at work, but but the men's fellowship and responsibilities as church, the member of the board of deacons. I just want to be able to squeeze it all in together. You get one shot at doing this right, guys, if you've just joined our conversation. Well, this is today with John Fuller from Focus on the Family. The book, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, just in time for Father's Day, published by Moody, and you can get it through John's blog. It's easy. Just go to johnfullerblog.com. That's johnfullerblog.com. When we come back, learning to balance the time and prioritize for first time dads. It's all the stuff you need to know as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, we're talking today with John Fuller, co-host of Focus on the Family's daily radio broadcast, heard weekday mornings at 9 a.m. with a reprise broadcast at 9 p.m. right here on KFAX. John is also a budding author, and uh, his latest book is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know. Great gift in time for Father's Day. And, of course, the book published by Moody and available directly through John's website. Just check him out at johnfullerblog.com. In addition, of course, to some great resources there, John also spends some time moosing on his experiences and insights and comes at this topic today of parenting with a bit of expertise. Oh, not just because he's the co-host along with Jim Daly uh, there of Focus on the Family, but because he's a father of six and he's got a bit of that road warrior experience. John, just before the break, we were talking about this idea that it becomes, as the family grows, so many demands on our time, and particularly for the guys out there, we feel as if, gee, we have to bring home the bacon, and we're busy developing our careers, and we've got our, our sights toward kind of the end game of uh, educational responsibilities. That's going to take a lot of money. Daughters in the family, that's going to take more money for the weddings. So we, we tend to get very busy on the outside with the career, but we want a balanced life, so we volunteer at church, and we're on the board of deacons. And in order to relieve some stress, because we don't want to be shooting off uh, you know all that pressure at home. Uh, We've got the golf game that we're working on, a hobby or two. We want to get all of this stuff kind of sandwiched into life in the early years, figure we're young and we've got the energy, why not? But there's some flawed thinking with that, isn't there? Hmm. Well, I think there is, and it has to do with, uh, with something we were talking about earlier, and that is the window of time. Listen, if you think that parenting is an 18 year journey and you're done, you're wrong. Uh, there are a couple of things I'd say to that. Uh, that fallacy is is wrong because, A, you really only have 12 to 14 or 15 years to really shape your child because by the time they're 14, 15, 16, they're choosing independence. They're, they're longing for adulthood. They're moving toward adulthood, and your influence is going to wax and wane for the next several years. So if you think in terms of window, time of window, it's not 18. It's a little less than that. Plus, um, if you think that at 18 you're done being a dad, you're wrong. My two oldest have moved out. 
I still stay in touch with them. I love that. That's the payoff for the foundation of the early years, uh, pouring into their lives when they were younger. And not perfectly, but I tried. And so um, if you want an, an ongoing relationship with your child that is rock solid and good and tight and close, and you want that from, oh, say, the time they're 18 until you know, you're in the grave, that's the bigger part of your life with your child when they're an adult and they're saying, see ya, I'm going back home now. Or they're calling you on the phone saying, got to go, the kids are, are needing me. That part of the relationship is what you've got to think of now. You've got to think long-term toward the, 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 uh, the target. Um, I love the psalmist in Psalm 127. He says, children are an arrow uh, that you have, parents. They're an arrow in your quiver. And arrows are not defensive weapons. They're offensive weapons. You take the arrow, you pull it back, and you're aiming at a target. You're not hoping it's you know, going to go somewhere. You're planning on where it's going. If we would approach fatherhood that way, I think we'd, we'd have an easier time prioritizing, uh, saying no to some things, and we'd have a bigger impact on our children than we might if we're just busy all the time and chasing the wrong stuff. So focusing, uh, John, so to speak, on the end game, as you say, because let's face it, when we think of how we want our kids to turn out, we have an idea in mind. You know, we want them to be good citizens. We want them to raise a successful family of their own. We want them to, to walk in a relationship with the Lord, maybe be involved in ministry. I mean, we, we all have dreams and visions for our children. So imagine that now when they need you uh, in those formative years, you got to be there to invest the time. Because, you know, payback can be terrible, John. And later on, it's amazing that if you're not there for your kids when they're younger and they really need you, um, you got to set those expectations right because later on, someday, you're going to need them. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very true point. Um, if I could, uh, I know a guy, and I'll just, in the book I call him Mitch, and um, yeah, I was talking to him, and, and I asked how the family was doing, and he said, well, not so well, and he shared some things with me that just were very sad. Um, he had one child that just really didn't want anything to do with him, another child who totally disregarded her, her parents' wishes and got married very early, and um, he, was, he was kind of standing thinking, what happened? Well, what happened was he didn't work on the foundation. Um, and if uh, I lived in Texas, and you had to treat the foundation for termites uh, because if you didn't, they were going to they were going to chew it up. And uh, of course, that makes for a really rotten house over time. Uh, you got to pay attention to the foundation, which is those younger years, and you've got to be willing to uh, readjust and and make sure that you're investing in the part of your child's life that is the most shapeable, the most uh, formative. And we know that, that, the, that it's never too late to recapture that relationship, to work on it. But, um, you know, by the time they're seven, eight, nine, they've got their ideas about who daddy is. And, um, and I hope I'm not throwing guilt at guys. I don't want to do that. Like I said, I, I myself was uh, confronted with my own uh, shortcomings in this. I just want to encourage a new dad to be thinking in terms of this is some of the most essential time. So right here, this is it. If, if I can get this right, if I can show up and love my child, spend time with my child, show I care to my child, uh, it's possible that I'm going to avoid a situation like Mitch's where they're in their teens and they don't want anything to do with me. Well, and, you know, I think, John, also, too, the big kind of 30,000-foot-high viewpoint on this thing we call life, to put it in perspective, uh, all of us perhaps have known older people, older saints that have gone on to be with the Lord and, and others who in their waning moments of life as they're kind of taking the inventory 
I've never heard anybody about to end their earthly presence here say, oh, if I'd only spent more time at the office. Gee, if I'd just gone to a few more conferences and meetings and spent more time uh, uh, dealing with business, then I would be satisfied in life. No, you never hear them say that. Instead, they say, if I'd only been a better husband to my wife, a better father to my children, if I only spent more time with the kids when they were younger uh, or with my grandkids. I mean, those are the things that if we miss out on it when we have the opportunity the first time around, you don't get a second time at this. You don't. And, um, and I, if, I, if I can share a story, my father-in-law passed away uh, at age 89, uh, just a few weeks short of his 90th birthday in December. And um, I, I was asked to speak at his eulogy, and one of the things I said was, I want my kids, I hope I can do this, I want my kids to love me and have as much respect and admiration for me as my wife and her sister and brother had for their daddy. They loved him, and they adored him, and they miss him deeply already. Um, that, that kind of affection and love from a child comes because you were there. And it doesn't have to be you were taking them to the theme park and you were doing all these things that are expensive or time-consuming. But it does mean that you were there consistently offering your attention, meeting that child where he or she is at, recognizing he or she is uniquely wired and needs something different than the rest of them. Um, when you try to meet your kid where they're at, when you simply say, you know, you're more important than me finishing this fence work, or, yeah, i got to check email for work, but I'm not doing that until you're in bed. Mm-hmm. When, when you say, hey, let's play a game, and they forget about it, and you come back and say, I, I wanted to play a game, that just says to a kid, love, love, love. And, and so it takes conscious choices. And, um, you know, if you do that, um, there is a payoff. A rich payoff. Absolutely. And, of course, another great invaluable resource. Uh, Take a little bit of uh, insight from the voice of experience, Uh, John Fuller, who's uh, now child number six. So he's got a little bit of a uh, little bit of power behind what he says. All detailed inside the pages of a book called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know. The book published by Moody and available uh, through, of course, you can find it at bookstores about the Bay Area. But best place to check it out is on John Fuller's blog. Check him out at johnfullerblog.com. That's johnfullerblog.com and uh, catch him weekday mornings and again in the evenings, 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. as co-host of Focus on the Family, heard right here on KFAX. Well, John, we sure appreciate the candor, the insights, and the encouragement for first-time dads. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Craig, thank you for the invitation, and if I may, happy Father's Day. Thank you, you too. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.